This episode is sponsored by Arc IT, and you'll find out more about them later on in the episode. This episode is also supported by Enscape, empowering your design workflow by turning your BIM model into an immersive 3D experience. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have conversations with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. Today I'm speaking with Jose Cruz Jr., who is the founder and managing director of Integrated Projects and was previously a designer at Robert A.M. Stern Architects and subsequently the VDC director at UA Builders Group, which was acquired by WeWork. In this episode, we talk about Jose's interest in prop tech from the owner's perspective in terms of his see, verify, quantify framework that he's developed at Integrated Projects. We also get into the value he sees in the service he's created for digitizing what he calls quote-unquote background buildings and how his team is creating this resource using reality capture, how digital twins of existing building stock has the potential to add value and jumpstart future projects that owners hire design teams and architects for, his layer zero analogy, sorry to all you ex-AutoCAD users out there who have the warning signs going off in your brain right now, and so much more. So without further ado, I bring you Jose Cruz Jr. Jose, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Evan, for having me. I have been listening quite for some time, so excited to actually be in conversation with you. Oh, that's great to hear. Uh, and and so I, I was given your name, and, and we've talked before, but from a previous guest on the show, Adam Chernick, and I, I know you guys have, have done a little bit of work together, and I'm excited about what you're doing. And, and I like how, I guess today we're going to talk about layers, <laughs> and that's an abstract kind of way to think about it, but the that's the point, is how do you talk, how do you start to create a vocabulary and like uh, definitions around the types of things that you're working on and with the clients that you're working with in prop tech kind of world. So maybe give us a little bit of background to kind of set the stage of where we're going to go in this conversation. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'll start personally, my background is in architecture, so I can very much relate to uh, the design side of things, uh, construction management as well. Uh, I had to move into it mostly out of necessity to pay the bills, uh, but also had the opportunity to sit, you know, across from that table. And uh, I think outside of myself, I think what I'm seeing is like, there's a broader digital transformation happening in real estate. And uh, my opinion is that I think that some of the architects in the industry have the opportunity to kind of be at the forefront of this conversation, but it, not without reconsidering a lot of things, both how technology is evolving, how integrating certain things that often exist as entirely different companies is, is one thing, and reconsidering the business model of how we digitize spaces and ultimately then design, build, operate spaces. Um, and I would yeah. I would add to that just the expectations on the owner and client side is evolving rapidly about what what values they get out of the process, but also the outcomes. And and that is a very much evolving landscape very quickly here. With I, I think a lot of that was accelerated by COVID, where all of a sudden owners who have assets wondering what the best use of those, whether they should hang on to them or not totally understanding what they even have. All of these things are really playing into this. And so these pressures on the design side are coming from a lot of angles, not just technology, and but but also from the people who pay for these services and for the outcomes that they're hoping to get out of them. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm wondering how, how we even got here. If I were, for example, the owner or an operator of an organization and in addition to running the business, we were sitting on a real estate portfolio of spaces. It's it's fascinating what I would have to go through to kind of answer some really fundamental root challenges that my organization has. Um, from, from our end, what I've noticed is that regardless of 
the technological advances of things like 3D scanning or building information modeling or a host of other kind of like layer two applications we're, we're building in PropTech, the questions that we're hearing from uh, operators and owners are real modest. They're still trying to figure out, uh, hey, could you guys help us understand what we own, right? Uh, can you help us see that? Can you help us mm-hmm. verify that what we're looking at is accurate? And then ultimately, can you help us quantify stuff, right? Can you help us count stuff? And regardless of the vertical where the owner exists, whether it's in office spaces or maybe they're a gym provider or in an institution, right? Like a, like a university with a real estate portfolio. Regardless of the vertical, they're all asking these really root fundamental questions, right? Can you help us see what we own? Can you help us verify it's accurate? And can you help us count stuff? And so uh, that, like, I think at its root is uh, what we're trying to solve for. And I think obviously some of the emerging technologies really is putting us in a position where we can reconsider how we're delivering services. Very interesting. Had to kind of boil it down to those very basic things. But like those are the needs of people who own these, you know, it could, it could be a building, it could be a floor, it could be, like you said, a campus, it could be a lot of things. And yeah. there's obviously a, a I don't want to say requirement, but there's a, a desire there to understand the asset in a, in a way that they can read and speak to. Like it has to be a language that they can speak. And plans don't do that and so i could totally understand that desire but then also we on the inside know that the plans don't necessarily reflect what was actually built and as builts are rare <laughs> right and so so yeah like is it accurate is a, is a great question because i'm sure i'm sure there's tons of stories about the inaccuracies that exist out there like what what the bill of goods is that people think they have versus what they actually have has got to be a, a there could be a very big delta there potentially. But before we get into all that, like how did you get to this place? Like you said, you, you came from architecture, but like how, how do you connect the dots between, you know, you started in architecture, you went to the construction side and, and, and now to, to where you are with the technology side and kind of serving the, the ownership side of the, the building industry. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. I, um, I often have to ask myself like kind of how, we got here. I would actually start before architecture. I think that um, I'm aware that some of my perspectives are heavily influenced by, of course, my experiences in architecture and construction. But even before that, I think growing up working with my father in a pizza restaurant uh, and having to bus tables and do the register and understand the the pressures of a small business, I think really forced me to. Uh, reconcile the skill, which is, of course, what you pick up in school and in the profession of architecture. But then also, you know, this reality that um, if you're not producing good services, folks are not going to go to your establishment or to your business, right? And so there's this uh, kind of constant uh, questioning of like, um, not kind of sitting on your laurels and not just kind of sitting on the fact that you're an architect and, you know, you kind of deserve to do work. Um, that's a start, right? And I think having watched my, uh, in this case, my mom and dad, my mom mostly in the back of the house dealing with payroll and making sure folks were paid and on time and uh, my dad in the front of the house making sure, you know, customers were happy and, you know, employees were trained and, and, um, you know, happy as well. I think that exposure helped me understand, I think, the broader implications of people and your product and your process I'd say that was, that was a huge influence. Right. And, and, um, you know, fast forward to today, um, I'm super aware that that was kind of the most impactful thing that gave me the confidence to start the uh, integrated projects. Fast forward to the, you know, me studying architecture first in Florida and then moving up to New York. Yeah. I think that that provided me the kind of the skill set and I guess the ability to ask better questions and understand some of the skill sets in the industry. Uh, graduated, ended up working for an amazing firm uh, at Robert A.M. Stern Architects, first job out of graduate school, did some exciting work, picked up some Revit skills there, understood that, okay, this is kind of where 
the the puck is going instead of where it's at. And so figured I should probably pay attention to BIM in general. I think add a necessity to pay the bills, living in New York City with student loans, realized that uh, I had to make some shifts. And that kind of led me to construction management, where I was able to kind of connect the dots between my understanding of design, but then also the technical side of Revit, right? And that kind of led me into BIM management for uh, for Tishman Construction, actually down at the World Trade Center. Sitting on that other side of the table made me realize that while I wasn't on the design side anymore, I was on the receiving end of these documents. And I was now responsible for building it on time and on budget and coordinating the resources and people to, to build this. And it gave me a, I think, profound insight into just right the other side of the table. I'm sure a lot of um, you know professionals are saying the same thing when they kind of make that jump. And so that was the start of me questioning, okay, there's probably way better ways to do this, but I also don't think it's just purely technological. I don't think it's necessarily just building a better mousetrap. I think there's some pretty profound ways of delivering a project that might actually have to do with just completely reconsidering what kinds of services we do. So in other words, right, the kind of the legacy firms of architecture and engineering and construction and, and, you know, we do this and you guys do that and they do this and that's kind of our scope. And I think that that model, it exists for a reason, particularly in kind of a litigious environment like the United States, but that might not be the right answer for every project type. And I should probably stop there, but that was that was the root of, of the thinking. I think that's all great. I think that that shows, you know, you've been able to, by seeing it from different lenses, been able to see these opportunities that exist, and and that's what's kind of led you to integrated projects to reconsider these things and basically develop a whole pipeline, which then you have to be able to communicate to people and speak various languages throughout this kind of stack of, or, you know, pieces of the puzzle as it were and to, cause, because luckily you can, you, you speak the architect language, you speak the construction management language, you have to learn or develop the vocabulary for the ownership side of things, but understanding that from like, how can you boil all of this down to its most basic essence and still have effective communication so that everybody understands what we're talking about is, is, I mean, you're a translator and, and that is, that's a very, it's a good position to be in also, right? Because you are kind of connecting these dots that through your experience you've seen as being disconnected. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, and there, and there's so much value in, in getting, getting this thing right, you know? And, uh, what, what I'd say is that, you know, if those experiences were, fundamental in, in shaping, you know, my thinking and then ultimately the incredible folks that you know, I have the chance to, to work with now. But yeah, that was the start is like, how can we get things right? And some of it was, how do we arrange contracts, right? It wasn't always just building better technology or building better execution plans, but like, how do we actually even design the way that we engage? Quite literally, I, I, I named the company Integrated Projects simply because of, for example, Integrated Project Delivery. Right. So not pretty boring name and a, and a mouthful, but figured this is probably where we're going. So we might as well start building businesses around this, right? Um, and, and teams. And yeah, so that was the start. I, you know, I'd say that I had the opportunity after my experience at Tishman Construction to work for a mid-sized general contractor that at the time was building a significant amount of WeWorks in the city. So I was on the kind of construction side of of that boom. And like most folks in that ecosystem was fascinated by this idea of space being a product. Right. And we had a lot of repetition. We had a lot of tries, right. To get this thing right. And so I was in a position where at the time the firm entrusted me with building a virtual design and construction department. And that's kind of where the, the, the playground happened, right. We had an opportunity to build a team of reality capture specialists, right. Like 3d scanning folks and BIM specialists and estimators and procurement specialists and uh, all in, under one roof. And uh, at the time, given the speed and scale at which we were 
of building these these office spaces, uh, we had a lot of tries, right? So we we messed up quite a bit, but also had the opportunity to kind of iterate quite a bit. And so we were finding that by combining 3D scanning and modeling, right? Nothing groundbreaking. You know, there's been folks here on the podcast that have talked about this. And one of the first things we wanted to prove was one, you know, the individual emerging technologies like reality capture, like BIM, like the data science that's kind of evolving out of BIM is one thing, but then evolving a business model to embrace that and actually add value to a client is, is an entirely different thing. So first thing is before even building kind of a new kind of firm is we had to prove that this thing works, right? So effectively, hey, if the rest of the industry is building spaces at 180 days, right, we're trying to build it in 90 days. And the way that we're able to do this is by employing certain processes and, and technologies like reality capture and BIM, right? So what would often take several weeks and months to, for example, digitize a space we were doing in hours or maybe days. And you're you're basically designing a process because that's the outcome that I, I, requested is not the right word, but it's fundamental to the business. Understanding that and then working backwards and designing a process that fulfills that is really, I mean, that's that's kind of off on a lane on its own because most projects don't work like that. Yeah, there are some goals for occupancy, but I think in in the type of vertical that we work was, it was like we need to do this in half the time because we need people in there paying the rent that then funds the business and like and and owning that whole process is just a completely different model than most architects are used to working in, that most contractors are used to working in. Like that is not a reality for them. That architects give contractors what they give them they don't give them necessarily what they need what what they need is something different than what the architects drew because what the architects drew was to get a permit for a building and and then the contractor is going to maybe take that and start over with their own model and do their own clash detection and do their own sequencing and get their subs in there and the shop drawing like it's a separate process so it's not necessarily building upon it is minimally but it's but but it not not as it could, right? And so what you're talking about is like a completely different process that most people aren't thinking about from that big picture standpoint because they don't have to, right? And architects can only know as much as they need to know. I hate to say it that way, but like that's kind of how it works. Right? It's like the Upton Sinclair quote, which is like, it's hard to get someone to understand something when their salary depends on them not understanding it. Like that's paraphrasing it, but but you can only know so much. And so if, if that other reality is never going to be your reality, it's really hard to kind of move the whole profession forward in that sense, because it's just, that's not everyone's yeah. reality. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, um, gosh, so that, that opens up a can of worms that, that I, uh, but, but I think, yeah, fundamental to, to your point is yes, there, it assumes that there will always be a pool of folks within the industry that will be hired for their expertise and kind of, uh, this kind of the bespoke nature of services, right? Where folks are being hired to kind of think about and recreate uh, or create a space. But while I think both out of necessity, right? When, when you start a business in New York City, right? You're playing in a very big pond, right? With very big fish, right? And so it was very, very, very unlikely that you could, you know, as a, as a young startup, go head to head with some of the big players in the in the in this particular case, right? The I guess would be the combination of surveying and architectural services. So I really had to kind of consider what market do we want to play in? And obviously what being in New York, what you kind of default to is that there's more built spaces than there are new ground up opportunities, right? And you know, I further learned there's there's actually more buildings in the world than there are websites. So that's a pretty big market. And when I consider over the years... That is interesting. Websites are basically free, right? So right. <laughs> that's interesting to think about it that exactly, way. Exactly, exactly. And so, and so I started realizing, it's like, okay, well, you know, in the kind of decision-making of playing in the ground-up space, which it's much, hard, much harder to come by, right? And the players winning those kinds of 
projects, right, are, are the known suspects. But there's a lot of work that needs to be done in the built environment, right, that we're not talking about. There's this term called the background building that I'm fascinated by, right? It's like we, we certainly in architecture school, you're kind of bred to to want to kind of have your chance at designing this, this masterpiece. But in reality, where we're living in, most buildings are kind of the ones that we walk by and really never consider. And yet people live there, right? And so th- th- this, is, this is where people live. And so tons of opportunity just in the buildings that exist. So that was, that was a start, right? And I think that opens up a, a whole other niche that I think we, we can discuss, which is, okay, well, how do we now begin to address some of those fundamental questions of these background buildings that n- no one no one no one is addressing that's a start that's a start and so uh, yeah i mean to to your point i think that there's going to be the folks within the ac space that might be kind of incumbents and they're not necessarily paid to think about this right it is outside their scope that's there's going to be a market for for that, but I, I think increasingly so, especially as we're seeing new prop tech companies um, emerge, what we're finding is that in this built environment, uh, I believe the previous podcast talking about the kind of the fat middle, I believe was the term. I think increasingly so we're building tools to kind of address for this kind of fat middle, whether you're in prop tech or whether you're just kind of designing new firms to address this particular product. I think now we can actually start to get into what you are actually doing in that because I think it starts to address the the type of people you're talking about. This is there is so much opportunity out there that is falls outside of kind of the shiny object syndrome of most architects, and so therefore it isn't on their radar, and and it opens up a ton of opportunity, like you're talking about in the built environment for people who are trained as architects and who have worked in construction and have worked for verticals like we work, you know, like serial builders and, you know, they, they own the whole stack and, and they're, they might have a different interest in the kind of data that you're acquiring than, than other people. But I think what you're, what you're saying that you're seeing is that more people are interested in that than we thought. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think that, um, I think how, how we speak about this is, is something that I, I'm aware and particularly sensitive about. I think that as, a lot of things are emerging. The, for example, the conversation around Web three, the conversation about blockchain, the conversation about crypto, the conversation about prop tech in general. How are we productizing space? I do think that all of these things are interconnected. They're rapidly kind of coming to some point, right? So, for example, reality capture is nothing new. It's been around for decades. Uh, BIM is nothing new. That's also been around for decades. Blockchain has been now been around for a decade or so, uh, or or longer. I think where we are getting to a point, though, is that these things are, as they integrate, they are spawning new, new things, new services, new ways of delivering spaces, and that to me is what's exciting. And so I don't know, right, how we begin to categorize this stuff. I don't, you know, I'm constantly asked, you know, is is integrated projects, is it a design firm? Is it is it a surveying firm? The honest truth is that. In the early days, we had to call ourselves whatever was necessary to get a project. Uh, just like every architect. Yeah. And whether that you know meant us kind of just accepting the fact that we were going to be within the surveying line item, right? And we would have to compete in there just to get a start. As as time evolved, I thought you know we we got a little bit more confident in our in our services and thought that this umbrella of building intelligence was something that um, is key and. And yet we're aware that no one even quite knows what that is or how to even hire a building intelligence or why or when. So we are aware there that uh, we've got some defining to do. But that's the start. I think is how, how how we call ourselves. I think the second question I had to really uh, internalize here is like, what problems are we actually solving? There's a lot of firms that, again, sit on the laurels of like, hey, I am a designer or hey, we do BIM. The reality is that there's no... At least I haven't come across many meaningful clients that really want BIM. When they say they want BIM, I think what they're trying to resolve is something a little bit more profound. Um, and when you dig deep, you start realizing that what they actually want is to know, to see what they have, verify it's right, and, and, and be able to count it to then kind of build upon that, right? And so 
you know, I, I'd use the, the analogy of kind of the, uh, the transition, for example, of like the typewriter and a computer, right? Like we're in this kind of evolution of CAD and BIM. And yes, I think while the industry we all know is kind of going towards some kind of information based modeling, the reality is that like no one hires a company nowadays because they use a computer versus a typewriter. It's almost assumed that you're just going to use whatever tool you need to actually solve a much more profound problem. In a similar way, I think building companies, you know, kind of on the fact that you're a technology company or a BIM company, I think it's kind of a little uh, short-sighted. I think reality is that we're using these tools as a way to solve some more profound challenges, right? And, that, and that's a start. Yeah, means to an end, right? Like, the, I, I agree with that. It's it's interesting to think about firms that say what their capabilities are as if those are differentiators. When in truth, like those are just table stakes to because you have to be adaptive and you have to be flexible and you have to use whatever tool is necessary to do the thing you need to do on the project. And to me, what's interesting, there are firms that show up and just, it is more about the ideas and more about their people in that sense, because that's where the magic happens. It's not necessarily in the, in the technology. It's not in the technology. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think that kind of having those table stakes, um, like the bullet points or like the resume or kind of this, I think it's got to have them. what, right. I think what we learn in architecture school, just to kind of show your portfolio as maybe a, a ticket to, to getting a project. I've certainly never had luck by just saying, Hey, look at all the work we've done. So please hire us or, Hey, look at the tools. We, it's kind of assumed that the qualifications are there if you've yeah, if they're talking to you. Right, right, exactly. And so I, I do think that um, in this sense, I do think that some of the more, I think some of the SaaS companies get this thing right, right? Where rather than thinking about it as a project manager, you think about it as a product manager where you're you're constantly asking, like, what are actually the root problems, right? And you're trying to constantly get down to, to that. And if you notice, a lot of the technology companies, the way you, they even present themselves, right? You, you won't see Salesforce or Slack you know, build build a, a website of, of just portfolio of, of clients, right? They're the way they present present themselves. Is usually, like, hey, you have you probably have a challenge, you have a problem. Use us, right? Because we think we could help solve that challenge. It's a it's an it's a nuanced uh, kind of perspective, but I but I do think that's fundamentally how we should start. Absolutely, yeah. I I, I think what's we talk about this in in our business a lot, which is that architects are kind of naturally predisposed to be that even though we call ourselves licensed architects we're licensed problem solvers and and i know there's a lot of well there's a few other companies out there who think of it that way as solutions providers and not just architectural solutions providers there's there's many clients out there who will go to an architect and say you know we believe that a building is the answer to our problems and the architect can say well let's not assume that Right. Let's look at what you've got. Let's look at the way it works, and and if there's something else we can do, I mean that that's a huge value add to a client. If they end up not having to build a new building to solve a problem that they have, that's huge, right? Then the problem becomes how does the architect get paid for that, <laughs> right? Because they didn't provide the service of providing a new building, even though the service that they did come up with, or, you know, the solution that they did provide is equally as valuable as right. a new building. And I guess the question that I have, Evan, maybe you have some insight into this, is like how usually one individual's problem or one organization's problem isn't like they're not the likely they're not the only person or organization that has a, a similar problem. And so I think what what design firms do well is that they, you know, they'll maybe land a, a job opportunity. They'll really dissect the problem and try to solve it, like you said, right, the kind of problem solving services. but uh, this does run into, I think now another factor here, which is kind of the business model, right? You, we could become problem solvers, but if at the end of that problem, we solve it, and then we're just looking for another problem that might be completely different, that constant kind of recreation of the wheel or just kind of starting from zero, I think is really impacting the industry and, and, and has some really negative impacts, right? Like just today in New York Times, I'm sure you saw the the article about 
uh, folks trying to unionize because of just low pay, long hours. Like it's not surprising like the why this is the case, right? I, I do think that there's some really troubling fundamental business models with this idea that, you know, we'll kind of reactively wait for a client to ask us to bid a project, bid for it, hopefully get it, right? Build a team around that to resolve it. But at the end of that project, we're still kind of left wondering, okay, what's next, right? And so for some of the bigger firms that might be, you know, you can kind of maybe subsidize a lot of that through just larger and larger projects. But for some of the, for most of the small, mid-sized companies, that's tough. That's tough to kind of sustainably maintain. And so it's not, for me at least, not surprising that having this kind of shift from services to product, or at least productized services, we're going to see that more and more. But I, I think out of necessity to just have better conditions, right, for, for ourselves and better business models to ultimately pay folks what they should be getting paid instead of this kind of cliche of, you know, the kind of overworked and underpaid uh, professional. And, and I think that no surprise, a lot of these kind of architects turned product managers or the kind of the architects moving into design technology. I don't see that trend slowing anytime soon. And, and, and while I think we understand them as two different things now between traditional architecture and design technology, I think it's going to become increasingly more common that the future design firms will just by default be design technology firms. Let's take a short break from the conversation to talk about this episode's sponsor. Enscape is a leading real-time rendering and virtual reality tool for the global AEC market. It plugs directly into your modeling software, giving you an integrated design and visualization process. With Enscape, you can render in real-time and walk stakeholders through your rendered model with incredible ease. Now buildings can be experienced long before they're built. And I have to add here that it's fun to use. Seriously, you cannot underestimate this. It's what makes this tool so amazing. This is something that most CAD and rendering programs can't claim. It democratizes your ability to create beautiful renderings at any time during the design process and use it as a tool to make valuable decisions during design. And as my friend Clifton Harness of TestFit says, it's one of the few well-established companies open to innovating in AEC. And you can see the outcome of this, where his company recently showed off how they were able to take advantage of the new Enscape SDK to incorporate the real-time renderer with TestFit. More than 200,000 unique monthly users from over 150 countries use Enscape to envision better designs. Don't be left out. To learn more or sign up for a free 14-day trial, visit enscape3d.com slash trxl today that's enscape3d.com slash trxl arc it let's start this off with a short story when zach a principal architect at csda design group came to arc it his network was hit with a ransomware attack and had been down for going on seven days and his current it support provider was telling him that it should be back up any day now without making any progress on getting them back up and running. When he came to ArcIT for help, they worked to recover his firm's most important project files first so he could be back up and running because they understood there are deadlines to hit. Zach's firm has now been with ArcIT for going on a year and he couldn't be happier. So as business owners and architects, how often do we think about our IT provider? Typically only when things go wrong. And for many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often, especially with the latest emphasis on remote work. I know that I've had to deal with my fair share of IT fire drills. Not pleasant. ArcIT, however, is a very different kind of company. They specialize in serving architecture, design, and engineering firms. And their goal is to help you use technology as a competitive advantage. This means that they understand your technology stack and they won't waste your time and money learning how your tools work within your process. Combine that with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, and solid disaster recovery and backup solutions, that's something that everybody should be thinking of, honestly, and enterprise-grade security management. And yet, above all, these are just table stakes for a solid IT company. ArcIT goes a step further. They become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, budgeting, and integrating new technology into your business processes. So all of this sounds expensive, right? Nope. 
because Arc IT is highly specialized for our industry, their pricing is on par or in some cases even lower than other IT providers. Arc IT is transparent and even publishes the pricing right on their website. Uh, speaking of their website, there's also something else you should check out when you're there, and that is their Design Under Influence blog and video series. Again, adding value to IT type solutions across industry, all good stuff. So your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. Reach out to my friends at Arc IT for a free consultation. So go to getarcit, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com, arc like architecture in the middle, and click work with us. And now let's get back to our conversation. I think of it from a, this kind of goes back to that shiny object syndrome that we were talking about. In the profession of architecture, you are trained in school to, like, those are the kinds of projects you want. Those are the kinds of projects you need because it's all about, it's all about you. It's all about us. And I, I, I still have, I'm kind of of two minds that the architect should be in charge. Like this whole master builder kind of idea. I'm not so sure that architects should be in charge just because they want to be, or just because they did before. And I think that that kind of level of entitlement, at least even if it's just thinking it is still some level of entitlement around that, which is control and ego driven the things that you're talking about like i had a conversation with sam over at homestead which will which is out by the time this podcast is out and homestead is on the adu slash sb9 front in california where lots can be subdivided and people can they, they basically partner with landowners to do the subdivision to build a new thing and to sell it off and make money from it. Like 80% of, of the fees of all of that go back to the original property owner. I don't think most architects are thinking about the problems in those ways. And because we're never trained to from the beginning, we're trained to chase the shiny object. And so the firm that you're talking about that was in the New York times article, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, Everybody will have read it probably by the time the show goes out. But uh, I mean, that is a shiny object firm. And, and I think this goes back to earlier points in our conversation, which is the types of architecture that we're talking about there are for the 1%. Those are the people who can afford it and do maybe value the outcome in that way. But that mean that also means that there is another 99% out there. And these are the background buildings that you're talking about. And for fundamentally we as a profession are leaving that 99% you know effectively on the table and saying you know that's not for us and now we're seeing companies come out saying yeah we want we want to practice there we want to make a social impact there because we can do it at scale because there's so much room and we don't have to compete so hard for it right it is it is a different game to be played and what's interesting to me is that that anybody could choose to play that game, but most people are choosing not to because of the sunk costs and the way we've always done things, right? It's it's very hard to kind of shift gears in that big of a way. And yet those are the companies who could make a huge, huge, huge impact because they do have the talent and the horsepower and the resources uh, to actually be able to do that. So I do hope that that, that shift I, – I do feel like we're in a place where that shift is happening, but I, I also I, – I don't know the right way to encourage because, because they are also the very risk-averse to trying new things. So how do you encourage them to try new things? And like, There's got to be better ways to kind of show off successful case studies. And if that's truly the goal is, is to serve our communities better in bigger, more impactful ways than one building at a time, one project at a time. Um, which I do believe is is the case. There has to be ways to kind of communicate that and get get more people on board with that because I do think that architecture has the ability to change the world in a positive way. Like we have to. We are the biggest carbon emitting industry in the world. We have the ability to change that, but only if we change the way we think about how we even approach these projects. I, I Evan, I hope you can kind of keep me honest here, but I guess what I'm trying to think of. From my perspective, 
I don't know if this is good or bad, and I'm kind of putting on my architect hat on, but some of the things that I'm seeing now is I do think that the way that we, so if we think about, uh, just to kind of summarize on, on, on what we're talking about here, if we talk about the built in, the existing built environment, and we talk about these spaces, and we talk about how we're building services around existing spaces, I think some of the opportunities here that we're going to likely begin seeing very quickly is I think that the digitization of these buildings is a start, right? Like I, I think that we can proactively find business models to actually capture what is there. The, the challenges of course are finding the right economics to incentivize us. So what I mean by that is in most cases right now in the industry, right? There's, there's this kind of reactionary way of getting work, right? There has to be a project, whether it's built or, you know, ground up, we have to wait. Someone asks us to bid. We, we go and bid and hopefully get it right. What I'm suggesting is that I think that the existing environment is, is there, right? Similar to just to use a metaphor of like an internet company, right? The same way that, for example, an internet company runs infrastructure in, inside a building to provide you certain services, right? Wi-Fi, cable, et cetera there had to be a kind of a part one and a part two, right? Part one was quite literally folks running physical cables and wires, right? Throughout the building to, to, to onboard those services. And then of course, day two was providing those services kind of building from there. What I'm suggesting is that with the built environment, there's buildings that exist. Reality capture technology is there to be able to capture these buildings today, right? Whether there's a project or not, we can very accurately visualize and verify what is there inside a building. No different than, say, the same way that an internet company could kind of run wires and cables, right, to kind of digitize a building, right, or onboard a building. Um, what I'm suggesting is that as we digitize these buildings proactively as opposed to reactively, we're now getting to a place where buildings can be proactively visualized or verified or quantified or you know, if that to me represents layer one, right, of just kind of verify, like, I guess to use that metaphor of like the Twitter verification check mark. Similarly, I think the real estate world has to go through that kind of layer one verification, right, to get things right. From there, all of the layer two applications we can build on top of that uh, is, is, you know, just as exciting, right? But before we can get there, I think getting to that layer one digitization is is really key. What I've been focused on with integrated projects is, is is trying to build the right operations and infrastructure, both physical and digital, to be able to focus on that kind of layer one digitization. Uh, a lot of the activities, right, that that involve that layer one digitization mm-hmm. is similar to what many folks have already seen, right? It's kind of nothing nothing new, but it's really the combination of these activities together is what matters, right? And there's a certain unit economics that have to exist there to actually make this possible, right? Because there, there isn't necessarily a project budget or a line item to fit in, right? Because there's nothing right there at all. So figuring out how to actually even do that is 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 a challenge in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, maybe you can speak more about where this idea about the layers came from. I mean, this audience definitely understands the idea of but but maybe just set set the set the baseline of of where that thinking came from with layer zero layer one layer two yeah and bear with us because you know i think we're trying to figure out how to actually even describe this but right right and i think we're i think the you know the entire industry as 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 a lot of things are shifting you know similar terminology is being used within like the um the blockchain space right and then um crypto and building protocols and apps on top of protocols but um, I think conceptually, the way that I understand it first and foremost is that there's really four ways to be able to engage with information. And level before I use layer one, I want to use level one. Level one is what I would quite literally imagine as raw data, right? They're points in space. That's level one. Level two is then taking those points in space and then creating objects of them that we understand. You can imagine a square, a triangle, a circle, rectangle. To me, that level two is information, right? So you go from data to now information. One one level uh, above that to, to us now begins to become insight, meaning you can take a square 
plus a triangle equals something else, right? That that's beginning to now kind of take information and actually begin to try to make in, you know some kind of insight. Uh, and then ultimately, there's like a level four, which is I think where a lot of us hear a lot of the buzzwords of like predictive analytics, right? And so we're calling that essentially, you know, uh, uh, intelligence, right? Where you say, you know, if this square is that, then it's this. If not, then it's that. Conceptually, that's kind of the framework we're operating in. And so what that means for our business is, okay, if we had to translate that to what the services we actually do, level one, that raw data, right, is how do we capture this raw data? I equate that to the same way that we have quite literally, we capture space through point clouds by way of 3D scanners, right? So very rarely, at least for us, will a kind of owner or operator pay us for that raw data. But we do need to capture that raw data as a way to then move on to level two, which they will pay for in the form of services. That level two for us represents assets like BIM or CAD or a location report PDF, things that do have value in the market and they need to deliver for a specific project. As as you deliver these kind of like level two services, then something interesting happens where one plus one now equals three, right? Where now that you've digitized not just one space, but two or three or four, now the information in and of itself becomes valuable. So one thing is to tell an owner of a space, hey, you have 10,000 square feet at this location. It's verified. It's accurate. Another thing is now to be able to sum to average across not just one location, but across 10, 20, 100, right? And that and the data that's created from that insight, that level three, is extremely valuable, right? So for example, if, you know, if Evan, you somehow manage a portfolio of a million square feet of workspace, uh, and within your records, you believe you have 1 million square feet, but when you've actually digitized it, you own actually about 900,000 square feet, that might be 100,000 square feet that you're, for example, paying in rent every month that you are losing to the tune of potentially hundreds or maybe even millions of dollars a month on rent, right? That's just a single use case, right, as to uh, why this kind of understanding of the insight layer is valuable. And this is happen- This is not a theoretical use case. This is happening all over, not just New York City real estate, the entire, you know, just real estate in general. There's, it's kind of a black box of uh, just bad information. <laughs> yeah. And that's uh, interesting to think yeah. about because uh, yeah, like you said, that does kind of just equally apply off all probably urban areas for the most, I mean, it, it actually applies to all real estate, but what you're talking about when you actually can compare and start to aggregate multiple buildings together under one owner, you're talking about urban kind of environment at that point. And yeah, it, like that's a, that's a huge problem from a, from a monetary standpoint of, and rent on expectation versus reality. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's and that's uh, that's huge, and it kind of goes back to those really three fundamental questions, right? I think it's one is being able to see, another thing is being able to verify, and then ultimately quantify. And um, I guess you know, I guess going back to that framework, right, where you that that's kind of the level three insight, right, that we're suggesting. Um, but then there's finally kind of another level four, right, which is essentially the predictive component of this. Now that we have digitized the space and we've understood sums and averages, now it's when we can make some informed decisions on what should be, right? And this is a conversation I have with my team. It's like, we don't want to be in a position to advise uh, a client or a customer as to what they should do before we understand what is. And I think we've we've heard this kind of come in the different forms of like data driven design and whatnot, but 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 this is a key point, right? Is that I think before we're ever in a position to advise someone, hey, you should do this. I think I think having that those kind of preceding levels of information is so key, right? To then actually be in a position where we can predict or what what should be. That's the kind of conceptual framework that I think we're thinking about, and we apply that to like how we're thinking about capturing space producing assets of value, but then also taking it a step further with how are we providing services that that matter. You'll notice that the activities themselves are nothing new, right? We're still 
capturing space. We're still producing models. We're still extracting those models and producing presentations. Uh, but I guess it's kind of in the packaging and productization of those services and how we present, right? That those products. And, and doing this across owners also gives you particular insight. I would imagine by, because now you're, you're standardizing data and you can, I mean, that might, maybe that's level five, right? It's like, you've got this ability now to go beyond one client to multiple clients and do comparative and predictive kind of analysis and just another level of understanding, which I think then informs your ability to have smarter services for the people that you are working for, because it's not just their black box that you're working within. I mean, it gives you the ability to understand the built environment from through other owners lenses as well. Exactly. And so, and to me, I, I guess the only way that I, I, I need to find like better analogies to how, how we talk about this, but I go back to that kind of internet model, right? Where, and perhaps this isn't the best example, because I don't think internet companies have the best reputation when it comes to <laughs> services, particularly when they get to a certain scale. But uh, this idea that there's buildings and we begin to digitize buildings, onboard buildings, and it's, uh, begin digitizing entire buildings, entire blocks, neighborhoods, right, cities, where now the data is there. And so now the question is, this spawns a whole other question uh, series of questions, right? It's who owns this information, right? And we, we take a strong stance here that uh, we do believe that the owner of the physical asset should likely also be the owner of the digital asset and in every and everything that kind of comes with that. And so we do feel strongly that I think going directly to the owner or operator of these spaces to be able to empower them with the visuals, the ones and zeros, that from there they can then empower their consultants, architects, record engineers. That's a profound shift uh, that might kind of mess with the way contracts are currently written, how architects perform their due diligence scope, you know, what trust do they have in the information that the owner is providing. So it's not lost on us that I think while we're completely convinced this is kind of the way the industry is going, it's not going to be just broadly accepted immediately. I think that there's going to have to be some kind of layer of trust that's built within the information provided to these owners. But it is kind of a change in, in dynamic there. I'm curious, to, Evan, do you, do you see it a different way? or? Um... No, I agree with you. I think that that is because there's there's already kind of a, just a root level lack of trust, right? And, and it's only going to be through, I, I think this is, again, that can bring in it tangentially to the business that that i'm involved in which is the relationships here are going to matter and that to me is where the building industry suffers because of the lack of relationship there's been a huge push over these last decade plus about uh rely on the data just take the data here's the data and i think that people have been burned a lot of times with that scenario so I think that there needs to be a shift back to relationship and because relationships is the, again, like the root of that trust where that's going to be coming from. And so that's where we're focused and the data is important. Like I need the data to make decisions and I also need to be able to trust that data. How am I going to trust that data? I mean, obviously that could come through experience with it over time, but I think a faster shortcut is by relationship with the people who are creating it, curating it, making it accessible, asking me what I need out of that data to do my job effectively so that I don't have to, you know, start with a blank page every time. I mean, to me, I see it as a huge opportunity to not have to do that. To, I don't have to start with a blank page. I can rely on you to give me a verified, like you said, Twitter blue check mark kind of a baseline to start with that isn't a blank page amazing that verification is going to be super important right and so how do you develop the body of people who verify the work how do you develop the the rules of engagement for that how do you develop the relationships over time i think all of that is where a big focus needs to be placed on because 
if we don't do that, like this profession just continues to become more and more divergent. So that that would be, I do agree with with your assessment. I think that there there is a huge opportunity here, and I I do think there will be a lack of trust. Getting over that is is a big deal. It really is, and uh, I, I think underpinning that is this kind of going back to this analogy of like the black box of, of real estate is that I think you know ent- entire entire services have been been built um, because of the lack of either inaccurate, incomplete, or just completely non-existent information for these buildings, right? And, and so I think underpinning this is creating some layer of transparency that if you could have the kind of clarity and, and knowledge that like th- these level of this series of assets have been produced and have gone through a certain kind of quality control check that you would expect, right? If, if you had to do a due diligence, you know, services anyway, creating some kind of transparency in that process is going to be so key, right? To at least kind of begin having that build of trust. And I think that this is interesting because now this is where we start diving into like the technical limitations of where we are, right? Both in our processes, our technology. Fundamental to this is is reality capture and like where that technology is. That's kind of the root. And again, representative of that like layer one, right? Where we're just talking about just raw data, how we're collecting that data. This is where I'm I'm most interested in, I think at the moment where we have, this is, typically what's considered more in the surveying space, right? Where you have 3D scanning equipment that could be hundreds of thousands of dollars. I think companies like Matterport are making it most accessible uh, based off photogrammetry. It's not quite LIDAR. It's not quite the most accurate, right? But somewhere in the spectrum here, we have to kind of figure out what's good enough for most projects. I'm really interested in how this space evolves because it's not going to be too far off. In fact, it already exists uh, where anyone with an iPhone for example, is now going to be equipped with certain LIDAR technology, right? This is, this, is, this is a big deal, right? Because now what formerly used to cost several hundreds of thousands of dollars and super high-tech specialists, even today that, that is becoming more and more accessible. And pretty soon anyone now with a phone is going to be able to essentially service that like level one portion, right, of capturing that space. That's profound. That's profound because now uh, effectively what that means is now anyone inside a space can capture their apartment, capture maybe, there, there's certain limitations there that I think wouldn't allow us to do like larger spaces quite yet, but it's just a matter of time. So that's profound because I mean, at that point, where is that information going, right? Once you capture that with your phone, someone is inevitably going to build an app to going into your photo library that's the, <laughs> that's it yeah it's all that matters yeah <laughs> or yeah it's going into some app sandbox right? exactly and so and so that that is likely what we're going to start seeing as this technology evolves right is that well we're capturing this raw information of spaces your apartment your office space etc that information is going somewhere so we're going to see these kind of level one providers try to gather that information and then ultimately provide you services on top of that And this is where I think then this conversation of like layer layer two comes into place. We have to capture space. There's that level one verification. Someone's got to do it. And then the information you can build on top of that verified information is a a whole wild west. For example, when I say layer twos, what I mean by that is anything that you could build on top of verified existing conditions. That could be test fits. That could be renders that could be laying on occupancy data over the space that could be market data transactional data sales data could be simulation yes simulation it could be um, a host of kind of layer two applications that could be built on right and by the way a lot of these companies currently exist right a lot of them kind of exist within the prop tech space now my argument here is that uh of course and (laughs) what i'm doubling down on as a team is that a lot of these companies uh, are still needing that verified information, that kind of layer one, and hence I think why you know our team has had uh, you know some some really exciting traction here in these last uh, last few years. Yeah, so maybe we can wrap up with just what that process has been like for you, and what kinds of conversation, or maybe give an example of a type of a conversation that has come out of 
capturing that data and then presenting like going through your process and then presenting it back to an owner? Like what, what's kind of a typical outcome that they see you, you alluded earlier to there's a difference between what they have versus what they thought they had. I'm just interested to kind of hear what their reaction to whatever it is that you present back to them and how, because, because I think I fundamentally feel like there's a lack of trust there too especially if they get something in an outcome of a report that you do versus what they thought they had. It's like, holy crap. Like, why would I trust anybody <laughs> again without going through this process first? And and maybe that's good for you, but also it starts to present an opportunity to try to fix that relationship problem potentially. Yeah. Yeah. I, Oh gosh. Yeah. So, so much there. I think, I am highly aware that there's absolutely going to have to be more folks paying attention to this kind of like layer one process. And we're under no illusions that we're going to be the, the only players. And in fact, I'm aware of you know other kind of folks working on the same thing. You, I'm sure everyone you know listening to us has heard the terms of digital twins over and over again. I, I would distinguish between this idea of digital twins uh, particularly building digital twins within proprietary platforms, as opposed to just simply focusing on verification of the assets, even if that's happening through the standard tools we use, like scanners and AutoCAD and BIM. So I would distinguish that. But this is this is to us an entire wild west of uh, opportunity. And you're exactly right. I think if we don't do a good enough job of explaining how these assets are produced, we owe it to 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 our clients, right? To, to, to get this thing right. And, and ultimately, I, I mean, this benefits everyone, right? And so we're going to have yeah, to prove right. that we can not just do this, but, but do it, do it consistently. I'm not exactly sure what this is called, right? Cause I guess you could call it, sir. It's called the blue check mark of the building. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess uh, for, for, for the long timers, right. In the industry, you're just like, Oh, Jose, you're just, you're describing surveying. Right. But I think it's, a, I think it's a, a little bit more profound than you know, than, than just kind of, uh, uh, kind of the traditional sense of, of surveying. I think it's a little bit more involved there, but it is because you're talking about these higher levels of intelligence, right. And you're, you're talking about being able to use those for that kind of insight. And I think, I think we do use existing conditions data for insight, but we're talking about a level above that for sure. We're talking about not just a capture, but but what is the story in that capture? What are these things telling us versus what we thought? And where where does that conversation then lead? I, this is the stuff that I think is it is the foundation for an elevated level in our profession. Right, right. And, and it does lead to, I think, when you have this now accumulated level of information uh, that now an owner has, what we do notice is that it does now create new questions that we didn't even know we could ask. Right. In fact, that's the discovery process. Exactly. And, and cause you don't even know the questions ahead of time. That's what this leads to. And you, you do have to put these in place in the right order to be able to then synthesize what the questions that you should be asking are instead of what are the default questions that everybody asks. Exactly. And so, you know, I, I think it's not lost on me that I, I, I'm certainly anxious, right, to be able to uh, dive into all of the endless use cases that I think we would find as to what I think is going to be the foundation to begin addressing what should be. But ultimately, it's really focusing on like on what is first. And I think if we get that what is question first, uh, there's going to be a host of use cases that neither you know you or I have even considered. Right? You're building a platform, possible. yeah, and that platform, you don't know how people are going to use it, but I think that it's going to be really fun to watch and see see what does was what comes out of that. It really is, yeah, it really is. Well, Jose, where can people find out more and follow along with what you guys are doing? I think it sounds fascinating, so I, I'm hoping that the audience thinks the same thing and is going to be interested in pulling up a chair and popping some popcorn and watching this, <laughs> this show unfold. It's, it's really, really cool. So our site is just IP dash X dot app there. You guys could uh, sign up just to follow along. 
of course, on, on LinkedIn and, and Twitter, you know, follow along. We're often sharing content there. But yeah, would love to, you know, chat with listeners, whether they're practitioners in the industry or owners or operators that have this kind of fundamental root challenges of, uh, you know, seeing or verifying or quantifying stuff. I'm excited to, like you said, kind of excited where these things take us. Yeah, just excited to kind of continue addressing that that what is question. Yeah, well, you're doing amazing work, and I'm so happy that Adam introduced us. Just really fascinating to see what you guys are up to. So, thanks for the conversation. I'll put links to all of the stuff there that that Jose mentioned at the end to his website, to his LinkedIn, to his Twitter. And you can find it all in the show notes for this episode. So thanks for listening. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon. <laughs>